I indicated earlier today that uh, this session would look a little bit at the tough question of embracing our limitations. Because there's the catch where bodies are concerned. <laughs> All very well to have this wonderful celebratory stuff about bodies and their meaningfulness and the deep sense of involvement and presence we can have in our bodies. And then we start thinking about the actual bodies we've got, or rather the actual bodies we are. And we think of the fact that the body is where we are vulnerable, where we're wounded. The body is where we recognize imperfection in some very obvious ways. The body dies, and we die. And it's curious, isn't it, that when the issue comes up in the New Testament of how the risen Jesus is recognized as a risen body, it is that his wounds are recognizable. So that's probably true of all of us. We're recognizable by the wounds of our bodies and the imperfections of our bodies simply because that's what's there. Our bodies carry the inscription of our history. This is where we've been. This is what we've bumped into, literally or metaphorically. This is what's brought us here. And as I reflected on that, I reflected also on the curious phrasing that St. Paul uses in two places, about carrying in his body the marks of Jesus and carrying in his body the death of Jesus. As if St. Paul is saying, part of what now makes me who I am, Paul of Tarsus, your friendly neighborhood apostle, part of what makes me who I am is that I've spent years struggling with what the reality of Jesus asks of me. And the result is this body that you see, this rather worn and unimpressive body. Paul goes out of his way also to tell us the, that he has no impressive physical presence. Doubtless pausing for the, for the Corinthians to reply, oh, no, Father. <laughs> and then when nothing happens, go on writing. <laughs> But I think that is part of what he's saying. I am the Paul that you see because I have been struggling with the wounds that come from trying to be faithful to Jesus. And here they are in the body. So when we speak about the significance of our bodies and what our bodies know, of course, part of what they know is vulnerability and imperfection. Listening to the body is, to put it rather brutally, listening to a system that is always running down, inexorably, changing, aging, failing, time limited. There is a sell-by date on our fleshliness, as you might say. And that's an important qualification, lest all this celebration of the body 
becomes detached from the actual material reality of the vast majority of our human brothers and sisters across the world. There is what I might unkindly call a Californian version of celebrating the body, which is all about the wonderful possibilities of sense experience in a sunny climate. And then there is the material reality experienced by our brothers and sisters in South Sudan, or the Amazon, or the Middle East, where to be where you are and who you are as a body is to be in the midst of injustice, pain, violence, and despair. And the very, well, the relatively minor wounds that most of us sense and live with are, among other things, just a connection with that much more deeply fragile and vulnerable human experience, which is the lot of so many human beings. Let's not forget that in our meditating as bodies, our theologizing about bodies, and all the rest of it. The solidarity I spoke of this morning, the way in which Jesus steps into the Jordan to be at one with those baptized by John, and so steps into the broken, fleshly humanity we all share. That's part of what we're called to and what we're involved with also. And having said that, of course, we are straight away confronted with a very significant element in our spiritual lives, which is what do we do about what we're afraid of? In a certain mood, I'm inclined to suggest that spiritual honesty begins when we are honest about what we fear. That if we don't face that and name it, we never really get started on our growth in spirit. Because if our growth in spirit is something to do with our deeper and deeper exposure to what is real, then our growth in spirit must be honest about what is there. And if what is there is a certain degree of fear and apprehension about our future, about the frailty of our body, and so on, then we must name it. We must bring it into the light. And like all those other things we have to cope with, it's not something we then have to solve, work with intensely, get over, or whatever, just something we have to look at calmly and say, yes, there it is. There it is. A body, frail and failing. And there it is. A certain degree of fear and apprehension that so often goes along with that. There it is. Keep it in the light. Don't forget it. Don't deny it. Don't belittle it. 
and don't be paralyzed by it. The disciplines that keep us honest about what we are and where we are are very important. We need to keep renewing our acquaintance with our frail and failing bodies. It may sound a bit odd to put it that way, but those experiences that keep us in touch with our own bodily limitations are significant. We recognize that if we are walkers, the point comes where the knee joints don't quite work as successfully as once they did. If we're swimmers, we may find that the muscles don't respond quite as flexibly and joyfully as once they did. We age. And we don't instantly give up. We reflect, we adjust, we come to terms with what is slowly eroding the body that we are. And once again, if we can do that with honesty and without panic, then we are doing something consonant with the life of the spirit. We're not going to solve this. We're not short of some unimaginable technological miracle which would create a whole lot of new problems, we're not going to get over the problem of aging, the problem of being frail, failing bodies. I apologize to those in the audience who are under 45. <laughs> Both of you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> for, for whom this may not be an immediately urgent existential question. Nonetheless, the fact remains. We're not going to get over this, but we can face it. We can treat it as the raw material for our growth and for our honesty. We can acknowledge our frustration and our anxiety and let it be. And that's why even frail and failing bodies can quite reasonably go on doing things bodily things in different ways, adjusting, discovering, and often finding some new way in which the body can be lived in, lived as, and experienced. It's why at a certain point people discover or rediscover their creative energy in painting or in sculpture. It's why people find some new form of physical exercise or physical discipline swims into focus, appropriate metaphor, as others swim out of focus. And that we should go on seeking to live intelligently as bodies, so long as that's what we are, is, I'd say, one of the hopeful things about our humanity. We do that, and so many people, so many in this room, will have discovered that already in countless ways, and I'd love to hear more about them. The ways in which, as one kind of physical expression and experience closes down slowly, another slowly opens up. And it is why, as I said, those new engagements with the physical experience 
or painting or sculpture or whatever it might be, take on added significance. You will, many of you have been in workshops um, very heavily populated by people of a certain age who are discovering exactly that and who are in that moment also discovering something of the creativity and the freedom and the presence that they might have had as children. Something of the liberty to, well, to breathe into and be in the creativity of the body in fresh ways. Because, of course, paintings like music and poems and sculptures are material things. They need bodily activity to keep them going. I, I have a sister, a sister-in-law, I should say, who is um, a fairly well-known painter. And I'm staggered by the sheer physical demands of painting. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? Oh, painting is just... <laughs> and you watch a painter, a serious professional at work, and you see the physical concentration, the sheer strain on muscle and attention, hour after hour. And you think, well, whatever that is, it's not a pastime. It's an intensely physical engagement. Even that apparently most cerebral of creative activities, which is writing. Well, I guess that a lot of those of you here who have had some experience of that would say it may not be quite like the physical strain of the painter or the sculptor, but there is, again, a kind of physical presence, focus, courageous persistence, which has its own demands. It's all about frail vehicles and frail instruments going on being the place where meaning happens, going on being inhabited ultimately by God. So we could say in relation to all this that one of the things we learn in the processes of coming to terms with frail and failing bodies is the extraordinary reality that God honors what is frail and failing. And God teaches us to honor what is frail and failing. God looks at the world, at the creation, and sees it as home for the divine love and the divine intelligence and the divine liberty. God honors what God has made as a home for divine life. And to see this cosmos that we inhabit as inhabited lovingly and committedly by the God who made it, that does give a certain dimension, doesn't it, to the sense of the world we're in. This is not only our home that we as bodies inhabit, 
This is the home where God lives, the home God inhabits, the home God has chosen to express divine life, just as our bodies are the medium in which God has chosen to express divine love supremely and uniquely in the body, fragile, wounded, dead, and resurrected of Jesus Christ. One of Shakespeare's most famous sonnets ends with the couplet, this thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. A beautiful sonnet celebrating, and I think the, that's the right word, celebrating, frailty and fragility and aging and passing. But to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Yes, this world, this body, these, these are not things that endure forever. The sell-by date is there. But love them. Love them in their changing reality. Love the world as it changes. Love the environment as it shifts from spring to summer to autumn to winter. Love it for what it is. Frail, changing, and yet penetrated by the divine life, honored by the divine gaze and the divine love. You see, I think it's that perspective on our bodiliness that can really help get us away from one of the most dangerous fantasies and illusions that we live with, which is the strange idea that what matters most about any one of us is our success and our productivity. To love what fails, you know, that's what God does, to love what fails to love what doesn't last, to love this peculiar bundle of organic stuff, to love the way this peculiar bundle of organic stuff is connected with other peculiar bundles of organic stuff, that's you, and the bundles of organic and non-organic stuff all around. God loves it. God loves it. Loves what fails, loves what changes, loves what doesn't last. And then you have the great sort of turning the sock inside out. Because God loves what doesn't last, what doesn't last lasts because God loves it. And suddenly, <laughs> the whole sense of who we are and where we are is miraculously transformed. Remember Julian of Norwich and the vision of the little thing the size of a hazelnut in the hand of Christ. So small, surely not of any interest or worth. No, no, says the Lord. It lasteth and ever shall, for God loveth it. This fragile, failing little thing, which is the cosmos, almost indescribably small and insignificant in the hand of God's love, that thing which doesn't last, which has no guarantee in itself of persistence, that thing which changes and crumbles, no, it's actually held in the love of God just because God's love is God's love. And so there we are, you know, in uh, physics you have this problem of the representation of 
four dimensions in three, the Merbius strip, which has one interweaving outer edge, and it's the same. You can't imagine it in the dimensions we have. This is a kind of conceptual Merbius strip. We love what doesn't last because God loves what doesn't last. That's us. But because God loves it, it lasts. So the worthwhileness, the eternal worthwhileness of every aspect of our world, every person we encounter, and the eternal worthwhileness of our struggle to love it, that's assured because it rests in the palm of God's hand, as surely as Julian's hazelnut. In practical terms, it is the crucial foundation of what I would regard as genuine Christian ethics, that deep affirmation of the value of anyone and everyone, successful on top of things or not, young, old, familiar, strange. God's commitment to be there loving the image of God in all that is made is the foundation of our commitment. It is, I suppose, the kind of thing that animates the Christian vision of great figures of our day like Mother Teresa or the late Cicely Saunders in the Church of England. Cicely Saunders' commitment to be alongside the terminally ill at a time when the medical establishment on the whole regarded them as a bit of an embarrassment. Mother Teresa's commitment to the forgotten and abandoned children of the streets in Calcutta. These instances, these models, tell us something of what all of this theological stuff looks like when it's lived out. This is embodied love. This is love for what doesn't last. And that love that we give to someone at the end of life, that dignity we seek to recognize and honor in people whose span is very clearly limited, that's one of, to my mind, the most deeply distinctive Christian insights we have to share. Sometimes, as many of you will know better than I, sometimes the love, attention, and accompaniment we give in those extremist moments of being alongside frail and failing bodies, those are entries into a level of awakened and aware love we might never have expected sitting alongside a dying person incapable of any communication beyond the touch of a hand. And yet, in that moment, the bodily connection between two frail, failing bodies can be an epiphany, a moment of deep, God-given insight, a moment of self-recognition and other recognition. As I say, many of you will know this better than I, but I think I have just enough experience of sitting alongside members of my own family in terminal illness 
to know a little of that sense of epiphany and awakening in the face, the most immediate face of mortality, of time-limitedness. And you know, if we don't flesh out that vision of honoring the dignity of what doesn't last in these ways, all that we've been thinking about so far in terms of the body and the sacraments and meditation and so forth, all of that is really just froth. Unless it leads us to and holds us with the most vulnerable of our fellow human beings. Unless it leads us there, it's not going to lead us anywhere. Because that's the moment where the nature of God's seeing of the world and God's embrace of the world actually comes through our own bodiliness, our own presentness. And from that experience, we can go out as believers, challenging all those things, all the myriad things in our so-called civilization, which measure human dignity or human worth by something other than that absolute love for what fails. If we got up and said in these plain words of one syllable, in lots of bits of our culture, the thing is to love what doesn't matter, to love what doesn't count, to love the people who don't count, to love the people whose votes don't count, to love the people whose work doesn't count, to love the people who can't work and don't work, to love the people who are most disturbing and threatening to you. What if that were the thing that really mattered? To love what doesn't work and doesn't matter, the people who don't contribute to GDP, the people who are just about to fall off the edge and therefore can be safely ignored or sidelined. Well, we probably wouldn't get the popular vote, but we would at least be doing what I think we're here to do as Christian believers, as bodily witnesses to witness to the God who loves what fails because it's there. It lasteth and ever shall, because God loveth it. God wants it there, and God's not going away. Enough said. That's where it all is. We love what doesn't last in God's name, and because of that, mysteriously, it lasts because God loves it. And that, that witness to God's lasting love woven into our bodiliness in a world where <clears throat> all things are disposable and replaceable from people to computer technologies. That says something. Here's a little bit I found in another modern uh, Greek Orthodox theologian. The Greek Orthodox are so good on bodies, you know. <laughs> this is a marvelous Greek theologian called um, Christos Yanaras. He's now in his late 80s and um, therefore, you know, does 
knows something of what we've been talking about. But he's writing here about what the Christian response should be to the environmental crisis. He's written quite a lot in his long life about environmental attitudes of Christians and about the way in which um, so much of modern Christian consciousness has rather forgotten our embeddedness in the real world. But he says, beware of treating the ecological question just as a matter of protecting ourselves. Because he says that's getting us right back to where we started. The environment is wearing out rather rapidly. Ooh, that's going to make us terribly uncomfortable, so we'd better stop wearing it out at that rate. Yeah, says Yanaris, fine, but actually that's just the same self-centered mindset that got us into this mess in the first place. And you can't really solve a problem just by applying the same mindset. What if, says Yanaris, you just rethought completely how you related to the world? That's what the Christian is after. Personally, he writes, or says, this is a reported conversation, personally, I believe that the destruction of the ecosystem cannot be slowed down or halted unless there is a change of attitude in us toward nature. I like to use the example of a painting. For a person governed by egocentric instincts, a painting is simply a wooden frame and a colored piece of canvas. If this person is cold, he or she would burn it to keep warm. For a person of relation, the erotic, the loving person, the painting on the canvas is the logos, the principle of a personal uniqueness. It preserves the otherness of a specific person, of Goya, of Rembrandt, of Van Gogh. Only when a person discovers in the painting the immediacy and clarity of this personal otherness, only then will his or her attitude change toward the painting, and only then will he or she respect it and protect it. That's to say, only when people discover in the beauty of nature the logos of the otherness of the personal God, the creator of the cosmos, will there cease to be an ecological problem. I think that's rather well said. What changes are... I seem to have a fly here accompanying me. Here. Another welcome little creature in the ecosystem. Um. <laughs> but what Yanaras is saying is, unless our attitude to the ecosystem is, like God's, the recognition of personal presence, personal relation. Unless we see the ecosystem we're part of as God's home, as speaking to us, opening doors to us and in us to relatedness, we'll just be back with the old egocentric problem-solving system. That's to say, the deepest response we need to our ecological crisis is one that restores our love of what changes and fails, our love of the fragility of the world. One that speaks not of avoiding disaster, but restoring communion, 
of a right, a life-giving alignment to the world we're in. Because our bodiliness, our bodily embeddedness in the material world is where our alignment with the life of the creator is to be found and lived through. So to sum up, what we've been reflecting on in this session is how we move through a very significant transitional point in our life as spirit. From honest recognition of our frailty to honest recognition of our fears about our frailty to an honest and clear-eyed love for our frailty and our vulnerability within this changing and vulnerable world. We love what fails and doesn't last in the name of the God who loves what is frail and doesn't last and whose love for that frailty is such that it is free to remake it, rekindle, re-enliven it eternally. So when we ask, what does the body know? When we reflect as meditators on our being in the body as contemplatives, as people seeking to grow in spirit. What opens up ultimately is this perspective on our being in the world, in God's name, animated by God's faithful, unrelenting, unchanging, ever-present love. In that act of witness, involved in our physical discipleship and following of God in Christ, we bear witness to the possibilities of a world not exhausted by function and success and all the rest of it. We learn, as the Greek fathers tell us again and again, we learn from that contemplation of the world, a contemplation of God as God, and vice versa. We learn to contemplate, not absorb, not manipulate, whether it's God or the world or the other or even myself. What the body knows, at some very deep level, is how to do that. An awful lot of our secular and our religious culture apparently seeks to make us forget what the body knows, to forget that initial glory of relatedness and presence that belongs to the child, to forget the instinctive resonance of sympathy with the other suffering body, to forget our sheer day-by-day, minute-by-minute dependence on what the world pours into us in terms of life. And so it's not completely wrong to say with some of the great minds of the Platonic tradition 
that our spiritual awakening is a remembering. We've forgotten what the body knows, and we've often forgotten how to be bodies. Meditative practice is one way of remembering. And you've all heard this before, I'm sure, remembering, putting our members back together, sort of screwing ourselves back in place in our bodies, in our world. That is not a bad analogy for what it is to meditate, to be in one's place, to inhabit and receive where one is. And that's what we seek to open ourselves to in the work we're called to.